Christ. Go ahead and locate 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to look at verses 29 through 34, and we're talking about resurrected priorities. Uh, it's been mentioned as we began the journey through 1 Corinthians 15 that this is the most exhaustive chapter on the theology of the resurrection. We're going to look at the nature of the resurrection body next Sunday, answer some questions about what that will look like. But today we're going to get a little bit more practical. We're going to talk about the application of the resurrection. Yes, there is an application of this doctrine. It's not just that we know about the resurrection or we celebrate it on an Easter weekend, but there are implications of the resurrection as well. How should it affect the way we live? I was listening to a discussion on radio and someone was talking about the revival days at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa back in the 70s. And a lot of people were being touched by the Holy Spirit. And people, the young people were staying for hours to worship and study God's word. It was a really neat time. And we're praying that a spirit of revival would come like that again. But Pastor Chuck, yeah, you guys are already clapping. I love it. But Pastor Chuck would say, um, you know, it's not how high you jump when the Holy Spirit hits you. It's how straight you walk when you land. And we can, we can go into church services and get all excited, and, and I don't mind that. I, I love the emotion of worshiping God. I love raising my hands and being in corporate worship. But probably the true test of my walk is not going to be how high I jump or how high I lift up my hands. It's going to be how straight I walk on Monday morning. And the truth of the matter, brothers and sisters, is that those who are doing polls in America are talking about that Christians, professing Christians in America, which, you know, each time we take a poll, it's amazing how many people are professing that they are Christians. But then we begin to look at how straight they walk. And when, I'm, when I say walk, I'm talking about how they live. In the New Testament, walk is a synonym for live. So when someone says to you, are you walking with the Lord? Are you walking in the Spirit? That has to do with how are you living with heaven's priorities? It's one thing to make a profession of faith, and look, I know we're all in process. We're all being conformed and transformed, and that's, that's a battle, and it's a lifelong journey. But I will also say this to you. I hope you and I are growing. I hope I can look back at every New Year's Eve and say, I'm not the man that I want to be yet, but I'm certainly not the man that I used to be. And I think that all of us desire that. But we know what the keys are. The keys are really to live with resurrected priorities, to stay in our Bibles, to stay in prayer, to stay in worship, to surround ourselves with good, healthy people. And those are all things that we learn as we go. None of us have arrived. But today we're going to talk about those resurrected priorities. Our text is 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to pick it up in 29, so uh, if you're physically able to, would you stand for the reading of this section? We're going to read it together. 1 Corinthians 15, 29 through 34. Paul writes, Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? 1 Corinthians 15, 30. Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. 32. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. 
Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. You may be seated. Father, we come before you right now as the, this little powerful section, uh, one that has perplexed many a commentator in terms of what baptism for the dead actually means. But here we are, Lord, before your holy word. We know it's alive. We know it's powerful. We know it transforms. It renews our mind. But we also know that there's something that has to happen within us, and we have to be good soil, receptive. We have to have ears to hear what you say. And it's not just a matter of hearing. It is a matter of application. Blessed is the one who not just hears, but does the word of God. In fact, James will say in James 1.22 that if you're merely a hearer and not a doer, you're self-deluded. Those are hard and strong words, but they're true. And Lord, we need to hear the joyous, hopeful sections of uh, the Bible as we have been celebrating the reality of resurrection, but we also need to hear the ones that are a little bit tougher, the ones that challenge our walk. How are we walking during the week? How are we living out our faith? And these are challenging words, but they're ones we need to hear. I need to hear them. So we humbly come before you. We ask that your spirit would speak to your church what you have for us as you walk in the midst of your people. Lord, may you conform us more to your image and may you be glorified through this time in your word. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen. Now you'll notice in uh, 1529, Paul uses the opening word otherwise. Now he's been talking about Jesus and he talks about that Jesus in verse 20 of chapter 15, but now Christ has been raised from the dead and is the first fruits of those who are asleep. Now if you were with us last Sunday, I gave you that first fruits imagery. It's the first fruits of the harvest. It's marked with a red cord, set aside for the Lord, put before him in the temple, guaranteeing the rest of the harvest. And some of us have heard the idea of first fruits giving, or, you know, we need to give our first and best to the Lord. That's the idea. But that first uh, sheaf that's offered to God guaranteed the rest of the harvest. And the imagery was, since Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, and he rose on the feast of first fruits, and he was presented to God alive. We will follow. We are the rest of the harvest. We also will be resurrected. Now, you guys know that the Corinthians had some silly, goofy doctrines among them. Some of them were denying the resurrection. And Paul says, if you deny the resurrection, then you're denying that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Do you want those implications? And the answer should be no. We know Jesus has risen from the dead. We know that he predicted his own resurrection. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. And he did it. The tomb was empty. Jesus is alive. Amen? Now, what that means is because he lives, we will live also. In Philippians 3, Paul says that our resurrection body, as we'll delve into this more next Sunday, will be like his. So his is a prototype, if you will, of our resurrection body. We're going to live, we're going to be raised, and there's a one-to-one -one correspondence between what dies and what rises. You will be you in the resurrection. Now, I will get into all the details of time and uh, death and all of that next Sunday. 
but we are going to live. There is a day coming when the Son of God will call and we will respond and we will rise. Now, in verse 29, it says, Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead if the dead are not raised at all? Now, what you'll notice as a pattern for you note-takers is that Paul is putting before the Corinthians, if, the, if there's no resurrection, then why this? Why that? Why this? And the first one that he mentions is one that I mentioned in my prayer has perplexed many a commentator. What is the baptism for the dead? Now, I was reading a commentary, commentary by Gordon Fee who said there's over 40 different views of the baptism for the dead. Now, we're going to go through all 40. No, I'm just kidding. No, we're not. <laughs> I'm going to give you what I think commentators would consider the top three, and then I'm going to tell you what I believe is the right view. And so we're going to spend just a few moments here. This is going to be the theological portion of this sermon. So put your thinking cap on, if you will. And we're going to get into the more practical with the rest of the verses. But first, we're going to get into the theology of the baptism for the dead. What is it? View number one, if you're taking notes. Commentators say the normal reading of the Greek seems to be obvious that some people were being vicariously baptized for the dead. Now, I, uh, years ago, I was in a printing company, and I had a sales manager, vice president of sales, over me, and we had a lot of interesting discussions. He was a bishop in, a, in the Mormon church, and I was a Christian pastor. So we would talk, we'd go on road trips, and we had good, lively conversations. It wasn't trying to make fun of each other or put each other down. He literally wanted to know what I believed, and I was interested in what he believed. And I had studied Mormonism to a great degree. And one time I remember he told me that uh, they had had hundreds of baptisms over the weekend, and he was talking about a local ward, like a local church for the Mormons. And I said, hundreds of baptisms? I said, that's amazing. But I came to find out that the hundreds of baptisms were not... 200 people being baptized individually. It was maybe a handful of people being baptized by proxy. What do I mean? I mean this. That someone would go into a baptismal like is below me, and they would get baptized for people who had died. This is why the Mormon church keeps such meticulous records of genealogy. Because they go through uh, seasons where they get baptized for their ancestors. The belief is that by being baptized in, by proxy, so let's say I had an aunt that passed away, and I'm a Mormon, and I'm not sure that my aunt uh, trusted in the Mormon gospel. And again, I want you guys to know, I'm not trying to put the Mormon church down, but this is something that they practice, so it is relevant. So if I went into the baptismal, and let's say that my aunt was Aunt Jane, and I got baptized on her behalf, so right now I baptize you, uh, on behalf of Aunt Jane, and I come up out of the water. What I believe as a Mormon is going to happen is that my Aunt Jane now will have a chance to hear the Mormon gospel in the afterlife. That's the view. Now, commentators, I, I will tell you, there's a lot of ways to look at this and slice and dice it, but here's the essence. View number one is that Paul is acknowledging something that the Corinthians are involved in, some in the church, 
who are practicing proxy or vicarious baptism for the dead. And that Paul does not agree with what they are doing, but uses it, uses the argument to say, why would you ever do this if you don't believe there's a resurrection anyway? Now that sounds good, and that may be the closest to the original Greek or the plain reading of the text, but there's some serious problems with that. For example, if that were true, if Paul believed that some in the church were practicing proxy baptism, and it is a false view, would not Paul, would you not expect Paul to correct the view right here? I would. I mean, Paul never hesitated to correct false theology. Let's ask some deeper questions. Does baptism save a person? The answer is no. We, as the Christian church, now there are some movements out there that teach what's called baptismal regeneration. Say, that's a big phrase, I need more coffee, what does that mean? Baptismal regeneration teaches that the moment that you go into the water of baptism, you are regenerated, that is, born again. The moment that you go under, and you come up now being born again. But as we study the scriptures, here's what we know. Water does not save us. Jesus saves us. Right? It's the blood of Jesus. It's his vicarious atonement on the cross. Him dying in my place and me receiving Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now we can use some examples of deathbed conversions or the thief on the cross or Paul saying early on in 1 Corinthians 1, I, did not, I wasn't called to come and baptize, but to preach the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1, 17. So there's a difference between the gospel and baptism. Baptism is not the gospel. Please hear me. It's a picture of the gospel. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. It's the first act of obedience. It's what people did after they received Jesus as Lord, after they confessed him, after they were born again of the Holy Spirit. Then they went into the waters of baptism publicly to confess and convey their faith in Christ. In fact, throughout church history, my understanding of church history up until the last couple hundred years is that the main way that you gave a testimony to a corporate uh, group like this of the church is at your baptism, not at an altar call, but at your water baptism. At second service, we're going to baptize a young lady today, and it's going to be a great honor to baptize her. She's already received Jesus as her Lord, and she's going to share a little bit about why she's being baptized, give a short testimony. This is why we ask people if you'd like to share at your baptism, because we understand that that's the time to give the public testimony of what Christ has already done in your heart. But prior to being baptized in water, you got to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, right? you got to be baptized into the body, baptized into Christ, which I think are all uh, synonymous ideas. You have to have a spiritual birth. In other words, if, if you did not have a spiritual birth and I dunked you in water, the water would not transform you. You have to be transformed on the inside. The water becomes a picture of that transformation. Everybody with me? Now, I'm not downplaying baptism. Jesus told us to baptize. He said to go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that's what we do. But we do it as a first act of obedience to convey an already spiritual reality that's taking place on the inside. Everybody with me? Now, there are groups out there, and you might meet them at the mall, who say, unless you're baptized by our minister and our baptismal, in the name of Jesus only, you're not saved. That is absolutely false. That's a lie. 
Jesus saves. But baptism is the first act to say, Lord, I am not ashamed. And I'm going to go into the water publicly to say, I believe in you and I'm going to follow you. Now, what is it then? Is Paul simply acknowledging a false vicarious atonement, something that maybe happened in the cults? Uh, you may be interested to know that the Corinthians had some weird superstitious views, and I'm talking about now just the city, and they had some superstitious views of the underworld, and uh, scholars have tried, in order to back up view number one, to try to find something where maybe these people in pagan religions, non-Christian religions, were doing this practice to maybe free spirits in the underworld or something like that, but they can't find it. It's just not there. Now, it is interesting to note that there were a couple of fringe groups who followed Marcion and one other that were doing this apparently in the second century, but it was considered heretical. It was considered wrong or a heresy. So I don't think that that's what Paul uh, is addressing here, although there is some compelling evidence for it. In other words, if, if Paul believed uh, that, that this is what people were doing and he needed to correct it. This is something important to correct because this is an issue of salvation. Think with me. This is what scholars would say it's salvific. What does that mean? Well, it means that if the people were being baptized by proxy on behalf of others, they believed that people's souls were at stake. I don't think that Paul would have passed by an opportunity to make sure that people understood that that's not how you get saved. In fact, we would argue that once you have died, your opportunity to receive the Lord is over, right? We need to decide in this life. There is no evidence in the New Testament that there's a second chance gospel for those who have died. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. Now is where you need to repent of your sin and receive Jesus as your Lord. Don't wait until it's too late. We have pictures of people who have perished in Luke 16. And the man wishes that he could go and warn his family. And, and the response of Abraham in that section of Luke 16, 19 through 31 is, it's over. You're here. There's no crossing over. They have Moses and they have the prophets. Let them listen to them. This guy is concerned about his family. Here's my point. But he's died and he has no opportunity it sound, he sounds even repentant. He's sorry that he is where he is, but there's no second chance gospel. So walking this view out, it would seem to me far-fetched that Paul would not have correct something this important about how one is saved if there was a false view among the Corinthians. All right, that's view number one. View number two. Baptism for the dead does not have to mean in the language in the place of or for the benefit of, but can mean that they are being baptized with a view toward or for the sake of. Thus, they are being baptized with a view toward being reunited, reunited with their departed loved ones in heaven. It's something like this. I'm becoming a Christian or being baptized today for my loved one who just died so I can be with them again. Baptism for the dead, that is, my Loved one died, and so I'm going to get baptized to make sure I guarantee a reunion day. Now, you should get saved to make sure you get <laughs> guarantee a reunion day, but baptism doesn't save you. Who saves you? Jesus does. The blood of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. 
All right? So this second view is touching, right? Someone might lose a loved one and say, I want to be baptized next weekend. But is this what Paul is referencing? I believe not. Garland says everything in this view places an emphasis on the meaning of the preposition uh, in the place of or on behalf of. And the burden on it uh, means what is proposed and the purpose for the baptism then follows. He's saying there's too much burden put on that, that preposition and it just doesn't seem to make sense. All right? View number three. This is the one that I hold. The view for baptism of the dead uses the term dead as a metaphor for the condition of believers who receive baptism. So that for the dead, or on behalf of the dead, ESV, is not a third person reference like they're doing this, those people do this, but to the subject being baptized. The Greek fathers, early fathers uh, in, the, in the Greek um, areas or Greek speaking, uh, said that the dead are the bodies because of which we are being baptized. Chrysostom, for example, argues that the wording is a baptismal confession. Paul's use of the third person would then be a reference to those who are being baptized. Some of you have seen when someone goes into the waters of baptism, the pastor will say, buried in Christ, raised to newness of life. Ephesians 2 says we were dead in sins and trespasses, but we've been made alive. And so the idea of a metaphor for those going into the waters of baptism is that this would be like a shorthand for the baptism of those who have just been recently saved. They were dead, and now they are alive again. Let me show you a couple verses, and then you can chew on this. Romans 6. Let's flip over to Romans chapter 6, just the book before the one we're in. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and then 1 Corinthians. Go to Romans 6. Let me show you some of the things that Paul says about this condition. And we keep in mind that Paul's using spiritual terms, some of which baptism captures. Take a look at Romans 6. We're in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, Romans 6, 4, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. And this is an interesting uh, facet of this, into death. That is, the old man dies. And this may have implications for the baptism of the dead. That is, they are dead to their old ways and alive in Christ. So it may come from both directions. You were dead, and now you need to die and live to Christ. Everybody with me? So it's both angles. So the baptism of the dead might, for Paul, be a metaphor for someone who was dead, dies in a picture in the waters of baptism, dies to self, and now lives for Christ. So you have to look at it as bookended, if you will. Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead, verse 4, through the glory of the Father, so we too might what? Walk in newness of life. For if we have been, become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with or die. That we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Flip over to Romans 8, look at verse 9. Romans 8, verse 9. However... You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, Romans 8, 9, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. 
But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And if, you, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who indwells you. Keep turning to uh, pass up First and Second Corinthians and go to Galatians 2.19. Just the, all the same area here of your Bible. Galatians 2.19. Take a look with me. Paul says, For through the law I died to the law that I might live to God. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. And then finally, a little bit more to your right. Pass up Ephesians. You'll get to Colossians 2. This is my final verse on just showing you some of these pictures in the New Testament. Colossians 2, look at verse 12. Colossians 2, verse 12 says, Having been buried with him with Christ in baptism, Colossians 2, 12, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us, how many? All our transgressions, praise God. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Back to 1 Corinthians 15. Now let me tell you, um, this is something that I'd ask you to wrestle with and we don't have to live and die if we agree or disagree. But I will say this. It may well be that Paul is simply saying, why do any of you get baptized in Christian baptism if there's no resurrection? Don't you think that Christian baptism, if it's supposed to picture death dying with Christ and rising to new life, dying to the old self, self and rising, why would anybody bother going through a ritual if it has no real meaning? Why bother practicing baptism if there's no resurrection? Make sense? Why do the picture if the picture does not picture a reality? It makes no sense. We do what we do because we believe that Jesus is alive. That baptism not only signifies a death to the old self and forgiveness of sins and cleansing, but it anticipates a resurrection to life in the body in which I died, I will rise. Everybody with me? This is the hope that the baptismal pictures. And that's what Paul may well be saying. Why do you guys practice baptism if there is no resurrection? Why do the picture if there's no reality? Okay, verse number two. <laughs> this has become my pattern <laughs> this is actually verse 30 of 1 Corinthians 15 second question why are we also in danger every hour application of the resurrection why would you ever put yourself in harm's way sacrifice for others if there's no resurrection write down 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-three through 29 where Paul catalogs the things that he went through persecution floating on the open sea day and night being threatened by 
brethren being threatened by false brethren. Some people saying they're not going to eat or drink until Paul's dead. Paul going into city after city, being stoned, left for dead, rejected, uh, threatened. Why would anybody ever do that? If you don't believe there's a resurrection, why would I ever put my life in jeopardy? Why would I ever risk a friendship to preach the gospel? Why would I ever go on a missions trip to try to reach people who are lost? Why, why would Jim Elliott do what he did and, and go to a lost tribe to try to convey the gospel to them? If he believed there's no resurrection, then you better live for everything you can get right now. Paul says, my ministry then makes no sense. Why would someone like Mother Teresa give up her life to be with the poor? Why would anybody take any kind of risk? Paul says in chapter 9, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. But why would anybody ever do that? Why would you invest your time in Bible reading? Why pray? Why go to church? See, this is what Paul is saying. You can't reject such an essential doctrine and not think about the implications. He says, I protest, 31, brethren, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. I protest Paul would say something like this, I boast in you, that is, you are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by men. The reason I did what I did is because you, for you and people like you to be saved. How many of you can think back to the person that shared the gospel with you? Took a risk. Maybe it was uncomfortable. Maybe they kept working on you. Maybe they kept saying, come to church. Jesus will change your life. And they prayed for you, and you came forward and now jesus is your life are you grateful are you grateful that someone said i'm willing lord i'm going to pray for this person i'm going to share the good news how many of you believe i know this is rhetorical we all believe it that people need hope that we need to know that there is a god who loves us and that there is life beyond the grave and it's true that's the great news about it it's true <laughs> Why would we not proclaim it? I know we have all kinds of stuff that comes at us. Paul uh, Thistleton says you could quote the end of verse 31 this way. From day to day I court fatality. That is, I put my life on the line. Why would I ever do that? Go to 2 Corinthians, a few pages to your right. Look at chapter 1. 2 Corinthians 1, look at verses 8 and 9. Here's what Paul says about just a portion of his life in the Roman Empire sharing the gospel. He says, 2 Corinthians 1.8, We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, 2 Corinthians 1.9, We had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. We were burdened excessively. We d despaired even of life. But why did Paul do it? Because he wanted other people to know the hope that he had discovered. The hope that found him. He wanted other, other people to know it. He wanted other people to hear that there's hope in Jesus. Do you? Do I? Well, that's what Paul is saying. His life was in constant danger. Bound by the Spirit. I'm on my way to Jerusalem. I don't know what's going to happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city that bonds and afflictions await me. But none of these things move me. I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my race 
with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God, Acts 20, 22 through 24. I'm bound by the Spirit. My life is not even dear to me for me to live as Christ and to die. It's like everybody says, I want to go to heaven, I just don't want to die. (laughs) I feel you. (laughs) Verse 32. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. What does Paul mean that he fought with wild beasts at Ephesus? Well, you guys know that a church was planted at Ephesus, and the letter written back to them is the letter of the Ephesians, very precious to us. And you know there was a guy named Demetrius. He was a silversmith there. He was making little Tickle Me Elmo dolls. No, not really. He was making uh, little, little statues of the Greek god Artemis or Diana. And when Paul came in preaching in Ephesus and said that idols are nothing, there's only one true God, the silversmiths, Demetrius' buddies got upset and they had a rally in the public square and people were trying to keep Paul from entering into the stadium lest he die. Paul saw it as a preaching opportunity. His friends were like, no, Paul, you've been beat up enough. Don't go in there. Stop. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Paul is saying that gods made with stone and and silver are not gods at all. He's infringing on our business, man. Are those the wild beasts at Ephesus? Maybe. Could have been false teachers. Paul would say in uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 9, a wide door for effective service is open to me and there are many adversaries. Think about how many people hated Paul. If Paul signed up for a popularity contest in the ministry, he lost. If Paul measured his life by what a lot of the modern professing church measures it by, if you followed Paul around for two years as an investigative reporter and watched him go from town to town and see how his blessings were flowing, (laughs) you you would say, this dude is beat up everywhere he goes. Yes, people get saved, but it's tough, and he gets whipped and beat up and left for dead. But Paul says, I'm not going to change one thing because people got saved. He says, if there's no resurrection, if I just did everything from human motives, what profit, 32? If the dead are not raised, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. This is a direct quote from Isaiah 22, 13. Let me just paint the picture quickly. There's several oracles being written to several audiences in Isaiah. And several of the oracles are written to Israel. And here, Israel, or namely Jerusalem, is addressed as the Valley of Vision. And God is chastening His people. He's allowing Uh, foreign armies to come in and discipline his people because they would not repent. So God allows them to swim in uncertainty and even loss and danger. And God's intention, of course, is that by doing this, the people would turn. They would repent and get things right. But instead of turning to God, you know what they do? They turn to alcohol. They turn to drugs. They try to escape reality. They eat and drink for tomorrow, they say, 
we're going to die. I have to tell you that way back in the day, in my party days, I would sit with my friends partying, and we'd be abusing our bodies and abusing substances. And we'd say something like this, well, who cares, because the world's going to end tomorrow anyway. You know, the threats of nuclear war and you fill in the blank of all the news reports justified our actions. Well, the world's messed up anyway, so let's just drown our sorrows in alcohol, etc. And you know that there are people you know that they'll use any excuse for a party. We're going to party like it's 1999. Every major holiday is an excuse for a party, a drink. But why? Escapism. See, God brought what he brought upon Israel thinking, and many times this did happen. Not that God had to think about it. He knew what they would do. But that it would cause them, drive them to repentance. But instead, for many of them, it drove them away, another layer away from God and two substances that could never satisfy If there is no resurrection, why not join those who try to drown out death's relentless knell, says Garland, with ceaseless reveling. Party it up, live it up, drink it up, for tomorrow you're going to die anyway, and if there's no resurrection, then you better get all the gusto you can get right now. Rex Humbard writes, A woman became very ill after a time of hospitalization. She returned home but was confined to bed. Her eight-year-old daughter was not aware of the terminal status of the illness. The little girl stood outside the bedroom door one afternoon as the doctor, along with her father, visited her mother. She overheard the doctor say, Yes, I will be frank with you. The time is not too far off. Before the leaves have gone from the trees, you will die. The little girl's presence was not detected. Sometime later, the father came to the breakfast table to find his little girl was not there as he had expected. After searching for her, he saw her out in the front yard. His heart was broken as he watched her picking up leaves that had begun to fall. She was using thread to tie them back onto the limbs of the tree. This life is not going to last. It's getting away from all of us. You can't rake fast enough, nor can you sow fast enough. The question that Paul would ask through the Holy Spirit is, is there something for you to live for and even die for? You know, the rest of the world who doesn't know Jesus, what do you think they're living for? You've got to turn up the music and drown out the reality of your own mortality. And if there is no resurrection, I don't blame anybody. Because if the computer screen goes blank and death is the end, then we better hang on with everything we got. Don't take any risks. Don't do anything edgy. Don't put yourself out there to try to reach some people group somewhere if there's no resurrection. But I want you to think, every time I bring up one of these examples, I want you to think of the opposite. But if there is a resurrection, then what should we be doing? Living our lives for the glory of God. Telling as many people as we can that there's hope, there's room on the boat for you. Punch your ticket to the train, for the train. Amen? (laughs) Do it with two fingers. 
<laughs> I remember, I think it was John Corson who told a story. He said there was a pastor and he would make certain points and the congregation would clap. And so he spent five minutes correcting them, saying, don't clap when I make a point. I don't want you clapping for me. And he was so poignant and convincing in his presentation, they gave him a standing ovation. <laughs> Verse 33, we're two verses away. Don't be deceived, 33. Bad company, what? It corrupts good morals. Do you think the Corinthians were being deceived? Do you think that the bad company here was not a rock band from the 70s? But rather, maybe this was the group of people saying there was no resurrection. Maybe the bad company had to do with bad theology about the resurrection. Hear me. Because your theology will determine how you live. Your doctrine, what you believe about God, is one of the most important things about you because what you believe about God and what's going to happen after this life will determine how you live. If you surround yourself with false doctrine or the mass spread uh, today of people being told what they want to hear, which doesn't give them the benefit of what they need to hear. And so they, they don't get the teaching, the full teaching of Scripture that allows us to amend our ways. Jesus said the truth will set you free. It won't enslave you. You need the truth so you can become free. There's another aspect of this. You can write down uh, 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3 to see the impact of false teachers. I won't go there for the sake of time. But there are, uh, in 2 Timothy 4, Paul says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. They will turn away their ears from the truth and be turned aside to myths. But you be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. You see, who you hang around with does matter. And morally speaking, if you have friends in your life right now that are pulling you down more than you're pulling them up, if you're in a circle of doctrine and discussion that continually ebbs away at your Christian faith, you may want to reconsider the company you keep. The university system, parents, grandparents, is all but corrupt, and I'm even concerned about seminaries. Mailing in belief in the supernatural and the resurrection and the virgin birth. Look, if we don't have that, if you're going to deny the resurrection and the reality of it, I don't know why you're in a seminary teaching. Because as I mentioned to you last time we were together, you pull the resurrection out of the New Testament, the document becomes mutilated. It's interesting to note that bad company corrupts good morals may be a quote from an ancient secular source, namely a, cotum, uh, namely a comedy play called Thais, T-H-A-I-S, written by Meander who died in 292 B.C. We are not sure if Paul knew of Meander but the phrase became a cliche even in the world and probably even before Meander. Though Meander was a pagan, he spoke the truth. The Greeks were familiar with the quote, 
kind of like a lot of phrases in our own culture, bad company corrupts good morals. You don't have to be a Christian to get that one, do you? It's just that simple. And finally, Paul says, become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning, verse 34. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Now, many times when we're reading our Bibles, we can see Paul encouraging and edifying even a church like Corinth that was messed up and had all kinds of problems. But there are, there's a time to say to somebody, stop sinning. Do you know that Jesus did that? Jesus healed a man at the pool of Bethesda, a man that had been in a condition for a long time, and Jesus said to the man, do you want to get well? The man said, well, every time I try to get into the water, somebody beats me into the water. Jesus ends up healing him. Afterward, Jesus found him, John 5, 14, in the temple. He said, behold, you've become well. Don't sin anymore so that nothing worse may befall you. In John 8, the woman caught in the act of adultery. You guys know the story. They're trying to trap Jesus. They say, Moses says she should be stoned, but what do you say? Every head turns. What's he going to say? What do you think he's going to say? Jesus starts writing in the ground. We don't know what he wrote, but it could be that he wrote all the names of the people there and their sins because he knew everything, right? Can you imagine peeking over? (gasps) (laughs) And then he rises up. He who is without sin, cast the first stone. You know, people were without sin. And we all know what happened. They dropped the rocks. They walked away. Jesus said, woman, where are your accusers? There's none, Lord. Then neither do I condemn you. Go and what? sin no more is there a place for us to say to somebody stop sinning yes we just read it could that apply to me and you yes sometimes we just need to be told that bluntly just stop it because we have something at stake here and it's a testimony which when we read between the lines here, certainly was in question in Corinth with the church that had all these things going on. During the Finnish-Russian War, final story, seven captured Russian soldiers were sentenced to death by the Finnish army. The evening before they were to be shot, one of the soldiers began singing Safe in the Arms of Jesus. Asked why he was singing such a song, he answered tearfully that he had heard it sung by a group of Salvation Army soldiers just three weeks earlier. As a boy, he had heard his mother talk and sing of Jesus many times, but would not accept her Savior. The previous night, as he lay contemplating his execution, he had a vision of his mother's face, which reminded him of the hymn he had recently heard. The words of the song and the verses from the Bible that he had heard long ago came to his mind. He testified before his fellow prisoners and his captors that he had prayed for Christ to forgive his sins, cleanse his soul, and make him ready to stand before God as the bells ring. (laughs) Perfect timing, thank you. 
All the men, prisoners and guards alike, were deeply moved and spent most of the night praying, weeping, and talking about spiritual things and singing hymns. In the morning, just before the seven were shot, they asked to be able to sing once more, safe in the arms of Jesus, which they were allowed to do. At least one of the other Russian soldiers had confessed Christ during the night. In addition, the Finnish officer in charge said, quote, What happened in the hearts of the others, I don't know. But I was a new man from that hour. I had met Christ in one of his loveliest and youngest disciples. And I had seen enough to realize that I too could be his. Father, we thank you so much for the grace of Jesus in our lives, how we desire resurrected priorities. Lord, on behalf of this precious congregation, I think we'd all come in humility asking that you'd be merciful with us. And we each would celebrate your patience. You are so good. You're so good to be patient with me in the things that I failed to do. So good to be patient with my ongoing besetting sins. So patient with my pride. So good to me. If you, O Lord, kept a record of my sin, I could never stand. But with you, there's forgiveness and amazing grace. The gospel tells me that every sin I've ever committed, you have erased. Now I'm going to ask you to keep your head and heart bowed and ask you to just meditate on God's word and think about what the Spirit might be saying to you. Do you know Jesus? If, God forbid, you were to die tonight, would you end up in heaven? It's a good question because we don't even know if we have tomorrow. So if you're not a Christian right now, you can just pray something this simple. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on that terrible cross for me pray it if it's you. Thank you for rising again from the dead and defeating death, my mortal enemy. I believe you died on the cross for me. I believe you rose from the dead. I believe you are God in human flesh. I turn from my sin and I place my trust in you. Would you save me and change me from the inside out? In Jesus' name. If you're a backslidden Christian and maybe your priorities have been going sideways. Maybe you were hurt, or maybe you got some information that upended your faith, or whatever it might be. He's here, and he wants to call you back home. Come home. He's waiting for you. And if you're a soldier of Christ, and you've been on the front lines doing your best, and trying to walk straight, and do what you're called to do, I pray the Lord would encourage you you're not doing one thing in vain. You're doing things that will count for eternity. Keep going, my precious brother or sister in Christ. Keep your eyes on him. Keep putting on the armor. Keep seeking him first thing in the morning. Just ask him for grace, and he'll give you grace upon grace. He'll give you everything and more that you need to produce the fruit of the Spirit and to live your life for what really matters. Father, for those all of those, all, every heart who's responding to your word, I pray that you'd be honored in our response. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. God bless you guys.